Okay, so we're uh, continuing in our uh, series in the book of Judges this week, and uh, we're in Judges chapter 3, if you've got Bibles with you on your phone, on your tablet, or do you remember those things where you used to have to turn pages? What are there books? Yeah, yeah. if you've got one of those. Um, do you know the good thing about a, a physical Bible is the batteries never run out. Yeah. <laughs> it's always available to you. <laughs> Okay, so we're in Judges chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 12. I saw this. Uh, I was looking for a, a logo to put on the, on, the, on the slideshow, and I saw this, and I thought, broken people, faithful God. What a great statement is about the book of Judges. Broken people, but a faithful God. So we're in Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 12. And it says, Once again the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and he gave... Uh, King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies and then went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms, and the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. So, just before we get into the, this um, story in the Bible... I wonder whether somebody would like to, with a loud voice, read this scripture out for me, please. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Great, thank you, Wynn. All scripture is God-breathed, even the tough ones where there's blood and guts and violence, and they're there for a purpose. So what's the purpose of this account that we're going to be looking at in Judges? See, um, the Israelites' enemies had got in and led them astray. Uh, It's because the Israelites had done what the Bible says over and over again in the book of Judges. They had done evil in the sight of God. And when they came to their senses and repented of neglecting God, God sent them judges, not in the sense of passing judgment on them, but in the sense of leading and ruling them with right judgments most of the time. In the passage we're going to be looking at today in Judges, we're going to be looking at a judge called Ehud. Um, But that's not the start of the story, because at the start of this story about Ehud, it says uh, the Israelites again did evil in the sight of God. And in earlier verses in the chapter, we read that they did did evil by following the practices of Baal and Ashtaroth to um, idol gods. Not idol in the sense they did nothing, you know, statues, idols. And um, in this instance, that God sent them a man called Othniel to lead them back to him. And Othniel fought and beat the king of Aram, and Israel was at peace for 40 years, all the time that Othniel was leading and judging the people. In our, in our passage, it says that they again did evil in the sight of God, and it seems to imply that they took to sinning in the same way as they had previously. And this was blatant sin. They knew God was watching over them as a nation, but they chose to do evil and sin in God's sight. And if they had looked at their actions through the eyes of God, they would have seen what detestable things they were doing. 
And that's how we must view things from God's perspective. Through the lens of scripture, which is God's eye view on the world. And not interpreting the Bible through our own spiritually defective eyesight. But to allow the lens of the whole scripture on a particular subject to bring it into focus and the truth of God's word. You can't build a theology on a single verse. You need to see what the Bible's saying about the whole thing. Later in the book of Judges, it says they did what seemed right in their own eyes. Doing what's right in your own eyes just opens you up to all sorts of things. James 1, verse 13 to 15, I think Neil quoted this last week. It says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. You see, sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. I say that again, sin always keeps you longer than you, uh, takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Here the Israelites again did what was evil in God's sight. They looked at the gods of the nations around and thought that worshipping them was better, more fun, more edgy, more exciting than obeying God. They wanted gods they could see, who they uh, believed would give them a bumper crops, uh, productive herds and flocks. So they did all sorts of sexually erotic acts of worship to Baal in order to persuade the god to make their land fertile. They even killed their babies in order to appease the god Molech in the hope that he would increase the young of their flocks and herds. What did they open themselves up to? Nations that had fully embraced these gods, who came and overthrew them, subjugated them, and made life hard for them. King Eglon of Moab, his, and his name means Bullock, big and strong and aggressive, he leads a coalition of nations against Israel, and they took the city of Palms, that's Jericho. And it says in verse 14, and the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. 18 years of the Israelites was wasted because they became slave labor for the Moabites. And that's what the word serve here really means, slave labor. When they started to worship the idols, Israelite, the Israelites thought it would bring them prosperity, uh, fruitful harvests, large herds of cattle and flocks of sheep. Instead, it brought them servitude for 18 years. Sin always takes you further than you want to go makes you stay longer than you want to stay and costs you more than you want to pay. The Israelites had dabbled in the worship of these supposed fertility gods uh, who would in increase their flocks, would give them control over the weather, who demanded the lives of their children in order to be appeased. And it opened a door to the enemy who worshipped these gods with even greater fervour which brought a shed load of trouble for the Israelites as it took them deeper into worship of these idols and hard labor under their enemies. Tony Milliker was a young man who left uh, Poland for England just before the Nazi invasion of Poland in 1939. He was cut off from his family 
and didn't find where his mother was until many years after the war. And he found that the farm he'd grown up on, the family farm, had been confiscated during the war and his mother had been uh, taken to an internment camp nearby and was uh, living on starvation rations. Every day she was marched from the internment camp back to work on the land of her own farm. And the Nazis took all the produce from the farm. How do I know this? Because Tony was a member of my old church in Nottingham and he told the story. See, this is how it was for the Israelites. They worked hard to sow the land with their crops and it was taken from them at harvest time and just left the minimum to live on. They tended their herds and their flocks. They were up through the night during lambing and calving season only to have many of the young taken from them to be used by the Moabite coalition. 18 years this went on for. 18 years they persisted on worshipping other gods and suffering the consequences. 18 years it took them to come to their senses and cry out to God in repentance. You could ask, why did God allow it? After all, they were his chosen people. Because when people, even God's people, choose to do what is right in their own eyes and go their own way and live contrary to God's kingdom ways, they take themselves out from under God's covering through their disobedience. And it gives the enemy an opening to come in and enslave them in some way. Remember what we read at the beginning, 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, to correct us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. The beginning of Psalm 91 gives you a flavor of what it's like to stay under the protection of God. It says, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He, is my, he alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I trust him. For he will rescue me from every trap and to protect you from deadly diseases. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. But the converse is true. If we come out from under the protection of his wing, chase after idols, whatever that might be, protection from our enemy is forfeit. So am I saying that every time something goes wrong in our lives, it's because we've sinned? No, I'm not saying that. Bad things happen to good people. Godly people get sick, have life-altering accidents, find themselves in horrible situations. Jesus said in John 16:33, in, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So Jesus said you're going to get trouble in life. It's not a bed of roses. Well, it might be because roses have got a lot of thorns in them, haven't they? So that's what life can be like. And that's just because we live in a fallen world. But if there are things in your life that you should have control over, such as habits or addictions or negative emotions, but find it difficult to control them, you have to ask yourself the question, was there a point in my life I opened myself up and gave the enemy a foothold? Maybe it wasn't you, but you're still suffering from the consequences of stuff from your family, which have left scars and hurts on you, which the enemy uses to get in and mess you up from time to time. 
The Israelites eventually came to their senses and cried out to God in repentance. And God came to their rescue. Enter Ehud. He was given the task of taking the annual tribute to King Eglon. So he hatched a plan. He made himself a short sword of about 35 to 40 centimeters long. That's roughly about 18 inches in old money. And he hid it loosely in his clothing on his right thigh because he was a left-handed man. And he set off with his entourage to take the annual tribute to King Eglon. And they paid the respects to the king and handed over the booty. And as he was leaving, uh, Ehud asked to speak to the king privately. And let's read what happens in Judges 3. And this is starting at verse 17. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silent. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch, <clears throat> shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look and to their surprise, the door of the upper room was locked. So they said, he's probably uh, attending to his needs in the cool chamber. In other words, he's on the toilet. <laughs> so they waited uh, until they were embarrassed and still had not opened the door of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sierra. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down from, with him from the mountains and he led them. Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him, seized the ford of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Gruesome stuff, isn't it? And it's easy to see this through our modern lens and wonder what it's all about, all this blood and guts and stuff and fat closing over the dagger and his entrails coming out, you know. But we need to see past that. What is the scripture teaching us here? Remember, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's you and me, if you're a believer, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For me, I see that this helps us to understand that we have an enemy who is ready to take advantage of any foothold he can. When we let our guard down, when we knowingly sin, we open a door to him. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, lightning Satan to a thief 
he says, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and to destroy. Given a foothold into the nation through their sin, Satan seeks to destroy them through this coalition of nations who invades and subdues them. Satan's tactics hasn't changed. He still seeks to kill, to steal and to destroy and looks for the foothold that sin can give him to do that. So what else do we learn from this account of Ehud? First, we have to repent from our sinful ways. The people cried out to God. And do you think they just prayed a prayer like, Oh God, you know we are in a tough situation here. Please help us, if it's your will, with King Eglon, that we might get along with him and his people, and he will have had change of heart and relieve us from some of the awful tribute that we have to pay. Do you think that's the kind of prayer they prayed? No, they probably tore their clothes, fell on their knees and cried out to God, telling them they were sinners and begging him to forgive them and deal with their enemies. For repentance always has to precede salvation or deliverance. We have to close the door to the enemy. True repentance is a declaration to both God and Satan that we mean business. We must be absolutely ruthless and give no quarter to our enemy, Satan. Ehud planned a strategy to eliminate the enemy, to take out the king of their oppressors, and it had started with the people's repentance. Now they must drive the enemy from the land and reclaim what was rightfully theirs. Ehud had a sword, and he wasn't afraid to use it. And we've been given a sword. It's the word of God, the Bible. And we shouldn't be afraid to use it. Paul says in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Paul here is likening the Christian life to a gladiatorial contest, a fight to the death, not against human foes, but against spiritual enemies. In this passage in Ephesians, Paul speaks of the armor we have to protect us from our spiritual enemies. He talks about the helmet of salvation and the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith. And the last one is the weapon of attack, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, it says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As I said, repentance is the declaration to God and Satan that we really mean business. The people cried out to God, but Eglon still demanded tribute from them. Ehud, with his sword, cut off the source of the enemy's power, which, uh, through a concerted effort by the people, eventually brought them freedom and restoration. Repentance is the start, but the enemy will still try to make his demands, and we must ruthlessly cut him off, using God's word against him. 
Do you remember when Jesus was uh, attacked by Satan just after his baptism in the, in the wilderness, after having fasted for 40 days and was feeling hungry, the Bible says? What an understatement. What weapon did Jesus use? He used the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. Three times Jesus said to Satan, it is written, and then quoted the, the Old Testament to Satan before he left, Satan left him. When you repent of, say, an addiction to something and make your stand, the enemy might whisper in your ear things like, you'll never keep that up, you're not strong enough. Counter the lie by speaking out Paul's words in Philippians 4 verse 13 who says, I can do all things through God who gives me strength. Or he might challenge you in your mind with things, um, you know, that have been said to you before, that uh, God should forgive you, you know, that you haven't been forgiven. Then wield the sword of the Spirit by declaring, because I have repented of my sin, I have salvation, according to 2 Corinthians 10.7, which says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. And you tell him, well, I've repented of that. That's brought me salvation and I've got no regrets. I've got nothing you can have a foothold in my life. Or declare that because of God's love and grace, you are a child of God and personalize it. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on me that I should be called a son of God. And that is what I am. Let the, let the enemy know who you are and who he is. Nothing compared to who you are in God. Or according to God's word, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, which we get from uh, Romans 3 and Romans 8. Look in the mirror in the morning if you're struggling. Look at yourself in the mirror and say to yourself, according to God's word, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Set you up for the day, that will. Or maybe the stuff from the past that you have repented of, it has been dealt with, but the enemy still comes along and says to you, remember that? You can't serve in the church because of that in your past. Well, you need to tell him. Revelation 1 verse 5. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his blood. Tell the enemy, I have been washed by the blood of Jesus. My sins have been cleansed. They've gone because of my faith in what Jesus has done. Or Psalm 103 verse 12, which says, For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Speak them out when the enemy whispers those things in your ear. You're not good enough. Yes, I am because my sin has been taken from me as far as the east is from the west. You have no hold over me, no foothold into my life. Maybe you need some help in working some of this stuff out. Then can I suggest you seek out Andy and Hazel who run the Lighthouse Ministry for exactly this purpose. Now, they're not here this morning because they've um, gone down to Minehead to celebrate with their family uh, the, the uh, life of Andy's father who passed away recently. Um, but, you know, they're there to help and their team are there to help with things like this. You know, some things are so deeply ingrained that we just need help to sort it out and to root it out. 
And these guys and their team can lovingly and confidentially help you come into freedom. I know I've been in, in counseling and ministry situations with Andy, um, just as a, as a person sat there praying. And um, it's, it's amazing because uh, God drops things into your heart as you're praying, but it's, uh, part of the rules are you don't say anything, you don't interfere with the ministry that's going on. And you think, Andy, you need to ask this question. And, and he doesn't. He's going all around somewhere else. And God, God, will you just put that question in Andy's heart to ask? And then suddenly, out of the blue, Andy will say, oh, can I ask you this? And you think, yes, <laughs> that's the one. And it just seems to break open the whole time together and brings freedom into people's lives. And if you want to do that, you can uh, come and speak to me after the service and I'll pass your contact details on or you can get in touch with them directly. The details are on the screen there. So what have we learned today? What have we learned from this passage? We've learned that if you open the door to sin, Satan will gain access and a foothold, mess you about. He'll take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. To deal with it, we need to repent. That means turn away from it. If we're going in one direction, then repentance means we turn 180 degrees and we start following Jesus and live godly ways. And that's godly repentance. And start going in the other direction, following God's ways. To fully defeat sin and Satan in our lives, we need to be ruthless with him. We can't just let things, uh, you know, just go along and think, oh, it'll be all right. I'll brush it under the carpet. No, you need to be ruthless with it and root it out and use the sword of the spirit, the word of God, to cut him down like the gladiator Paul likens our warfare to in Ephesians. We need to stand up against the enemy's attacks until we stand with our foot on his neck. And like Ehud, we should not be afraid to make the killer blow. That routes the enemy and brings God's freedom into our lives. Let's pray.